If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is the Nations of Canada podcast, episode 44, Peace. It's been a while since we departed the war narrative that once dominated the podcast. And although the conflict on the St. Lawrence has loomed large in the background of many recent episodes, it's worth catching up on what was actually happening between the Iroquois on one side and the French and their indigenous allies on the other. The last major event we covered was in 1660, the Battle at Long Sioux, where a joint force of French and Wendat were overrun by a much larger Iroquois force. The battle has long played an important role in French-Canadian mythology, as Adam Dollard Desarmeaux sacrificed himself and his men in a bid to deflect the Iroquois war party from its goal of destroying Montreal, just 25 kilometers further down the Ottawa River. In reality, Montreal was probably not the Iroquois objective. In fact, Dollard and his men likely did little to disrupt the enemy's plans. More than anything, the Iroquois were looking for Wendat and Algonquin captives, both to add to their own ranks and to break up the Christian indigenous communities that still clung on outside of Quebec. In this, the Battle of Long Sioux could only be considered a great Iroquois success. The vast majority of the Wendat warriors peaceably defected to the Iroquois, and Anoataha, the most stalwart of the Wendat leaders, was killed. In the aftermath of the battle, the future of the Wendat community at Quebec was very much in question. Having achieved their goals, the Iroquois returned home, satisfied with their efforts that summer. We've already seen the response to these events in France. One of the motivations Louis XIV had in taking over direct management of Canada three years later was the need for greater military security. If things kept going as they had been, France's transatlantic empire was in danger of disappearing. Running parallel to the colonial reforms Louis and Colbert pushed through was an increase in military muscle. For the first time, the regular French army prepared to cross the Atlantic. But it would take time for the king to marshal his forces. The first soldiers wouldn't arrive on the St. Lawrence until 1665. In the meantime, we're going to focus on the other side of the conflict, the Iroquois Confederacy. One of the running themes of this podcast has been the imbalance between European and Indigenous history. When trying to piece together events from the French perspective, historians have access to familiar and reliable tools, or comparatively reliable anyway. Like any good imperialists, the French kept detailed paperwork on who was directed to do what. We also have many personal letters describing the events we're curious about. And when it comes to registries of baptisms and funerals, New France might have some of the best-preserved records in all of the 17th century. Everyone belonged to the same Catholic Church, and unlike most places in Europe, Quebec and Montreal weren't occupied and reoccupied by opposing armies, which can often have destructive consequences for historical material. As a result, historians have an unbroken chain of demographic information. Anyway, my point here is that there's a natural bias towards telling stories from the European perspective. Historians have access to evidence from which they can draw conclusions and be reasonably confident in their analysis. Telling the story from the indigenous perspective is far more challenging, and in a real sense is impossible to do with the same scholarly rigor. Inevitably, historians are forced to move into the realm of speculation and tracking broad social or economic trends. 
Then there's the added problem that the few documentary sources we do have were created by Europeans, with at best a limited understanding of the indigenous worlds they were observing. All of which is to say that the easy story of this episode is that the King of France decided he wanted to use the full force of his European resources to win the war in Canada. And once his European armies crossed the Atlantic, the Iroquois were quickly intimidated into submission. However, in the more difficult but ultimately more accurate story, the resolution to the war had just as much to do with affairs within the Iroquois Confederacy. And, most importantly for us, it was this Iroquois context, rather than French military power, that would come to define post-war Canada. So before we delve into the familiar story of European colonial politics, we'll have to make sure we understand, as best we can, how the Iroquois saw the course of the war. Again, from the European perspective, this seems obvious. Ever since the dispersal of the Wendat Confederacy in 1649, the French and their allies had been on a decade-long losing streak. The other side of the coin must surely have been victory and triumph for the Iroquois. But war isn't always a zero-sum game. Just as it's possible to have a win-win trade, it's possible to have a lose-lose war. Despite the many victories, and despite the ability of the Iroquois nations to mobilize large forces on the St. Lawrence, by the early 1660s, the Confederacy was under significant strain. First of all, the waves of disease that, in some sense, fueled the chaos of the past two decades was taking its toll on the Iroquois. The influx of captives that came with each season's raiding could never make up for the scale of death brought about by the epidemics. A fresh wave of disease ran through the Confederacy from 1661 to 1663, severely depleting Iroquois manpower in the years following the Battle of Long Sioux. In fact, the ever-present need for new captives forced the Iroquois to abandon their traditional policy of avoiding simultaneous wars on multiple fronts. By the early 1660s, they were fighting the French and their Wendat Algonquin allies on the St. Lawrence, the Abenaki to the east, the Susquehannock to the south, who were now armed by Swedish colonists on the mid-Atlantic coast, and various groups in the western Great Lakes. Iroquois warriors even managed to tangle with Siouan-speaking groups in the upper Mississippi Basin, west of the Great Lakes. Despite the captives secured on these campaigns, the Iroquois population continued to degrade. For instance, in the 1640s, the Mohawk had been able to mobilize just under a thousand warriors on the St. Lawrence in a given season. By the middle of the 1660s, they were only able to muster around 300. And while the expanded campaigns failed to arrest the decline in numbers, the Iroquois left themselves dangerously overextended. Inevitably, they suffered the consequences. As we saw in episode 39, the Runners of the Woods, the Ottawas were rebuilding the old Wendat trade network in the Great Lakes. A key component of that work was increasing the security of the region. Since at least 1650, Iroquois raiders had been preying on the various groups of the Western Great Lakes, a mixture of longtime residents and new refugees pushed out of the Wendat, Erie, and Neutral Confederacies that had been destroyed. By the 1660s, however, the Ottawa had started to fashion a coalition out of these disparate groups partly on the basis of a renewed fur trade, but also out of a shared fear of Iroquois aggression. This culminated in 1662, when an Iroquois war party moving through Lake Superior was ambushed by a joint force of Ottawa, Nipissing, and Ojibwe warriors. The Ottawa and Nipissing we've met before as components of the old Wendat network. The Ojibwe were Algonquin-speaking people from the forests north of Lake Superior, who would become an important part of the revitalized fur network as it moved further inland. The coalition force dealt the Iroquois their worst defeat since the 1640s, and effectively ended Iroquois encroachment into the western Great Lakes. It was a major turning point, both in that the Iroquois lost lucrative raiding territory, and it signified a real change in the politics of the western Great Lakes. The various groups in the area would remain independent and fractious for decades to come, 
but they had demonstrated their ability to unite in the face of Iroquois incursions. However, as much as overextension led to military defeats, the gravest problem facing the Iroquois Confederacy was at home. The absorption of so many captives into Iroquois society was a remarkable, and from a certain perspective, impossible undertaking. There was, of course, a long tradition of integration and assimilation within Iroquois societies. The whole concept of mourning war required it. But by the 1660s, many Iroquois villages now had more captive residents than native ones. This presented a whole host of political and cultural challenges. Counterintuitively, the rituals underpinning adoption began to lose their cohesion just when the Iroquois needed them the most. The problem was a fundamental paradox within Iroquois warfare. Young men were motivated to fight by seeing the enemy as an ancient blood rival. And yet, once vanquished, the majority of those enemies had to be integrated into the community. The stress brought on by years of continuous war exposed the system's contradictions. Some Iroquois war leaders complained that their young warriors were becoming increasingly more difficult to control. For instance, running the gauntlet was an important ritual within the prisoner-adoptee system. Before being tortured, prisoners had to run through two rows of Iroquois, who beat and mock them. This was meant to break down the prisoners and prepare them for submission to their new community, except for those destined for torture and death, for whom this was just a precursor to the horrors they would face. But chiefs of this period complained that all too often prisoners were beaten to death while running the gauntlet, a violation of the ritual's intended function. Young, overly enthusiastic warriors were blamed. But in reality, this loss of control was likely a result of the pressures of war. The mourning war relied on a fine psychological balance of revenge and accommodation within the minds of young men. And there's evidence that by the 1660s, that balance was breaking down. Even when the captives did manage to complete the transition to adoptees, Iroquois political institutions struggled to cope with the sheer scale of the task. The Iroquois model depended on consensus building. There was no state capable of enforcing decisions, so everyone had to be on the same page, or else individuals might play spoiler. Even in the best of times, such lone actors were a potential problem, a factor we've seen complicate peace negotiations in the past. And this was far from the best of times. Building any kind of consensus within communities that were made up of several different nations was difficult work. Restricting decision-making to the natural-born Iroquois rather than their adopted neighbors wasn't really possible. Practically speaking, a blurry line emerged between captives, adoptees, and the old Iroquois, a clumsy term for the original members of the Confederacy. At the Battle of Long Sioux, we saw this ambiguity work to the advantage of the Iroquois. Recently integrated Wendat warriors were able to convince their former compatriots that submission to the Iroquois would be to their advantage. But in general, there's evidence that these divisions within Iroquois society were more bug than feature. In theory, captives gradually transitioned into adopted members of the family. It's possible that full integration or assimilation was never really necessary. A residual connection to old kinship networks may have provided useful trade or diplomatic connections. But in the 1650s and 1660s, even that kind of qualified integration was simply impossible. Old identities, whether they were Wendat, Algonquin, or any number of other nations, persisted alongside new ones. In fact, in some cases, something like Wendat factions may have emerged within Iroquois villages. And if there's one lesson to take out of the collapse of the Wendat Confederacy, it was that Iroquois societies were not equipped to handle factionalism. And running alongside these durable national identities were religious ones, brought down from north of the St. Lawrence. The Wendat and Algonquin captives who were Christians were determined to retain their faith in their new homes. This added another layer to the social problem within the Confederacy, and another issue on which to divide. 
there's little evidence that the Iroquois were hostile to Christianity per se. In fact, the greatest hostility came from Wendat captives, who blamed European religion for the calamity that had befallen their nation. Christianity within the Iroquois Confederacy during this period is difficult to piece together. Historians mostly rely on extrapolating backwards from the well-documented Iroquois Christianity of the 1670s and 1680s, or on the records of the brief Jesuit mission among the Onondaga during the truce negotiations of the 1650s. The best evidence suggests that the missionaries played only a minor role in the early spread of Christianity within the Confederacy. Much more influential were Wendat and Algonquin women who brought their faith with them into captivity. Through intermarriage and adoption, some of these Christian women became important matriarchs and established Christian longhouses. In other words, the more victories the Iroquois won, the more diverse the Confederacy society became, an outcome its political institutions weren't designed for. War exhaustion, coupled with anxiety about a fracturing social and political consensus, drove some Iroquois leaders to see peace as their only salvation. Prominent among them was Garakonti, an Onondaga leader we've met previously. He was the chief who warned the Jesuits about the impending breakdown of the truce, allowing them to slip out of their Onondaga mission before they were overrun. Garakonti now reopened the talks with the French that he had helped initiate back in the 1650s. Partially, this was a response to the military situation, the overextension of Iroquois manpower, and the recent defeat at the hands of the Ottawa coalition. But Garakonti may have been more motivated by the domestic crisis. The source of most of the Confederacy's divisions was the war. Every decision was a source of contention and turmoil. Garakonti and others like him likely saw an end to the war as the only way to bring a degree of normalcy and harmony to Iroquois politics. The radically reshaped Iroquois people needed some breathing space to determine who they were. In the winter of 1661-1662, Garakonti hosted a Jesuit envoy within the Onondaga nation in an attempt to establish a truce. Crucially, Garakonti wasn't just building bridges with the French, but was at the same time trying to fashion a consensus within his own nation. By 1664, he was largely successful. Military defeats, disease, and turmoil at home convinced many of his colleagues that the time for a new approach had come. Representatives from the Seneca, Cayuga, and Onondaga nations traveled to the St. Lawrence and agreed to a provisional truce with the French. However, a full general peace that included all five Iroquois nations remained out of reach. Two obstacles held up talks. First, Mohawk delegates refused to come to the table. They had emerged as the most powerful of the five nations, thanks to their direct access to European trade on the Hudson. As the easternmost nation, they were also insulated from the rising military challenge posed by the western nations, like the Ottawa. But the greatest obstacle to a general peace was the French colonial leadership. As we've seen, Quebec was under new management, and the king and his officers were determined to show their indigenous neighbors the kind of military power the French state was capable of wielding. As you know, King Louis XIV took direct control over New France in 1663, while Garconti was building his peace coalition within Iroquois society. But it took some time for the French crown to deploy its military resources on the other side of the Atlantic. It wasn't until 1665 that soldiers of the French army started arriving on the St. Lawrence. Deciding how those soldiers would be used were three newly arrived royal officials. First was the commander of the troops sent from France, Alexandre Prouville de Tracy, a 70-year-old army officer who had won his reputation fighting in Germany in the 1640s. Tracy arrived in June 1665 with the Carignan Salier Regiment, a unit that had gained experience in France's European wars. However, the men were in no condition to undertake any major operations that summer. For one thing, it took a while for the full regiment to gather. Tracy and a contingent of the men were coming from the Caribbean 
where they had spent the previous year in an island-hopping campaign against the Dutch. They had successfully secured Guadeloupe, Martinique, Tortuga, and a collection of other islands. But as was often the case with European soldiers, fighting in the tropics had wreaked havoc on the health of the men. Tracy delayed any thought of campaigning until the following spring, giving the soldiers a chance to recuperate. He also needed the time to bring his numbers up. The regiment was under strength, and new recruits were being rounded up back in France. The full force of around 1,300 men didn't fully assemble at Quebec until the end of the summer. By that time, Tracy had been joined by the other two members of the new royal administration, Governor Daniel de Remy de Courcel and the Intendant Jean Talon. As you may recall from a couple of episodes ago, the Intendant was a new figure in Canadian politics. The office was designed to take over many of the governor's responsibilities in the civil administration of the colony, especially in the area of justice and finance. But this wasn't just a matter of sharing the workload. Back in France, the office of the intendant had played a crucial role in the various centralizing projects of the past decades. Cardinal Richelieu had introduced these officials as his eyes and ears in every corner of the kingdom. Intendants ignored the regional institutions and personal aristocratic fiefdoms of France's bureaucracy and answered only to the crown. Their job was to root out corruption and make sure France was governed in the interests of the crown and the state, not local power brokers. This model was now being consciously extended to the new royal colony of New France. The governor would not rule Canada as his own private kingdom. As a result, the intendant who arrived in 1665, Jean Talon, would end up being a more important figure in Canadian history than the governor who accompanied him. In two separate stints as intendant, 1665-1668 and 1670-1672, Talon would put his stamp on a formative period in the colony's development. The vision for New France's future was laid out by King Louis and his advisor Jean-Baptiste Colbert, but it was Talon who made it a reality. Talon was 39 years old when he took up his post in Quebec. He had risen in the state bureaucracy through his administrative and organizational skills. In the 1650s, his work captured the attention of Cardinal Mazarin, who deployed him as intendant in several locations across France, strengthening the power of the central state. The Canadian job was just the latest step in a fast-rising career, the key man in a project close to the king's heart. We'll have plenty of time to get to know Talon better in upcoming episodes, though. For now, as our current episode is focused on military affairs, it's worth focusing on the governor who arrived alongside Talon in September 1665. Daniel de Remy de Courcel was the same age as Talon, but had a distinctly different background. Where intendants were often men who had risen through the bureaucracy and had an education in the law, governors had to be military men of noble blood. Courcel was a soldier, and he saw the task he faced in Canada in purely military terms. Upon arrival, the governor immediately met with Tracy to see what military preparations had been made over the summer. In fact, although Tracy had not yet marched on the enemy, he and his men had been busy. The Richelieu River, which connected the St. Lawrence to Mohawk territory to the south, was heavily fortified. Tracy had built a string of forts, reaching all the way to Lake Champlain, 150 kilometers to the south. The St. Lawrence was secure against any possible raid, and French soldiers would be in prime position to march in the spring. It was therefore with tremendous confidence that Tracy, Courcel, and Talon received an Iroquois delegation in December. Once again, Garaconti had assembled a collection of representatives from multiple Iroquois nations. Their goal was to reaffirm the earlier truce with the western nations of the Confederacy and expand the ceasefire to include the Oneida and the Mohawk. The French colonial leaders, however, were dubious. They saw little evidence that these envoys spoke for the entirety of their nations. In a sense, Garaconti was playing a kind of double game. He was seeking peace with the French, but he was also playing to a constituency at home that was still unsure of his peace policy. 
It was a kind of chicken and egg problem. A real consensus within the Confederacy might not emerge until talks with the French showed real progress. But the French were reluctant to commit to anything until Guerconti's allies could demonstrate that they were more than just a faction within the Confederacy. In reality, though, the French, especially the military men, had more cynical reasons for stalling talks. They had brought the king's army all the way across the Atlantic, and they weren't going to send it home without showing the Iroquois what it was capable of. There would be peace, but not until these savages were shown the true meaning of European military power. And that demonstration came far sooner than anyone expected. Courcelles wasn't willing to wait until the spring to strike. In January 1666, the governor took personal command of an expeditionary force of around 600 soldiers and colonial militiamen that had assembled on the Richelieu. In doing so, Courcelles began a long tradition of European-trained officers learning harsh lessons about warfare in North America. What followed was a sequence of events we'll become familiar with. A heady mixture of ignorance and arrogance causes a European officer to ignore the advice of indigenous or colonial allies as he marches into disaster. Canny or adaptable soldiers learned from their mistakes, but most didn't. In this case, Courcelles and Tracy were advised by the Wendat Christians living outside of Quebec. Via Jesuit intermediaries, they pointed out the flaws in the French plan. Neither Courcelles nor the majority of his men had seen a Canadian winter. Indigenous warriors did sometimes go on small-scale winter raids, but moving a European army through the forest south of the St. Lawrence in January was insane, especially since these soldiers didn't have the proper gear. Forget the snowshoes necessary to move through the high drifts, they didn't even have proper coats. Neither were the French bringing enough axes or blankets. As one of the Wendat leaders put it, the French regulars had clothing ill-adapted for running through the thicket and underbrush. But just as important as these warnings about the conditions the army would face, the Wendat also had valuable strategic advice. They reminded the French officers that there were large numbers of Wendat prisoners and adoptees among the Mohawk. Many of them only remained docile because they didn't see escape as a viable option. But the presence of a massive, well-armed French army would radically change that. If managed properly, with Wendat envoys smoothing the way, defections might destroy the Mohawk nation from within. The Wendat advisors urged Courcelles to woo their friends and family within the Mohawk camp, and in doing so, defeat the haughty Iroquois without striking a blow. On both counts, however, Tracy and Courcelles were deaf to Wendat suggestions. Striking a blow was the whole point of their enterprise, and as for the logistics of the march, those problems would be outweighed by the advantage gained in surprise. Shock and awe would overwhelm the Mohawk, leading to a glorious victory. The Wendat, astounded by the stupidity of the officers, withdrew back to Quebec. They had hoped to join a campaign of liberation, a chance to reunite with their kin among the Mohawk. But this was looking like a doomed march into the wilderness. Courcelles complained to the Jesuits that the Wendat Christians were useless as allies. At the end of January, he resolved to march without them. Predictably, the expedition immediately turned into a disaster. European armies, accustomed to the roads and cleared land of their home continent, consistently underestimated the difficulty of marching through North American forests. Doing so in January didn't help either. To compound things, the region was in the midst of the worst winter in a generation. After several days of picking their way through dense forest, the French army was lost and had seen little sign of the enemy. At one point, scouts did spot a small Mohawk party, but a detachment sent to hunt them down were ambushed with the loss of ten men. Eventually, on the 15th of February, the expedition stumbled onto a settlement. Only, it wasn't a Mohawk village, as they might have hoped, but Schenectady, the Dutch settlement on the Mohawk River. After procuring some much-needed provisions from the Dutch residents, Courcelles was surprised to be greeted by an English official out of Fort Orange downriver. 
Unbeknownst to the French, the English had just completed their conquest of New Netherland, which was now New York. And for that matter, Fort Orange was now Albany. Although this news didn't really affect Courcelles' immediate objective, it's worth putting these events in context. First, the English conquest of New Netherland temporarily disrupted the Dutch Mohawk fur trade. Eventually, the English would be as active as the Dutch on the Hudson, or more accurately, Dutch traders would continue to do business under the auspices of the English colonial authority. But while the conflict was ongoing, Dutch trade goods didn't make their way up the Hudson. The disruption of trade was a key influence on the willingness of the Mohawk to talk peace in the coming months. The wider European context here is worth noting too. In the 1660s, European diplomacy was in a transitional period. The old dynamic, which had been in place for more than a century, had been the great power rivalry between France and Spain. But that era had come to an end with the Treaty of the Pyrenees in 1659. The once great Spanish empire admitted defeat, and as part of the peace, King Louis XIV had married Maria Theresa, the daughter of King Philip IV of Spain. A new European chessboard was emerging. For the next century or so, Europe would struggle with the question of how to divvy up the dying Spanish Empire. And no one was in a better position to scoop up all the choicest real estate than Louis XIV. His new Spanish wife provided him with the dynastic claims, and France's status as the one superpower left standing gave him the opportunity to impose his will on the continent. What all this has to do with New Netherlands slash New York is that New England and the Netherlands had a central role to play in the fulfillment of France's ambitions. The Dutch had long been French allies due to their shared animosity towards the Spanish. But with that common enemy now neutered, the old friends eyed each other suspiciously. Louis started to prepare a legal case to claim the prosperous Spanish Netherlands in the name of his wife. The Dutch suspected that they would be next. Meanwhile, English attitudes were changing as well. In 1660, the English monarchy was restored with the return of the exiled Charles II. Popular sentiment within England sided with the Dutch Protestants against Catholic France. But King Charles had a complicated relationship with his French counterpart. Louis provided the king with a healthy subsidy, limiting his need to rely on unruly parliaments and allowing him a degree of latitude in ignoring popular opinion. As I mentioned, the 1660s were an especially turbulent time, and each of these nations, France, England, and the Netherlands, were still feeling their way through the new diplomatic situation in Europe. Soon enough, the forests that Courcelles and his men were wandering through would become a frontier in a global imperial conflict. For now, though, the French governor had more immediate concerns, like how to get home without starving. The Dutch settlers informed Courcelles that the Mohawk villages were just three days away to the west. But instead of taking his starving, freezing men into battle, he resolved to head home. The English agreed to take in the men who were too weak to make the return journey, and the rest headed north. The march home was even more difficult than the trip south. Morale and supplies were at rock bottom. At least 60 men died, some due to starvation and exposure, others picked off by Mohawk warriors trailing the column who pounced on any stragglers. One officer admitted that things would have been much, much worse had the army not come across a group of friendly Algonquins a few days south of the St. Lawrence. The hunters provided food and acted as much-needed guides over the final leg of the journey. The attempt to demonstrate France's military superiority had backfired spectacularly. The response among the Mohawk was mixed. Some were emboldened by the humiliation the French had suffered, and a fresh round of raids started in the spring. But others were impressed with the scale of Courcelles expeditionary force. It was unlike anything the French had deployed before. There were also the long-running concerns about war exhaustion and internal divisions. The Wendat Christians had likely been correct in seeing the potential for defections. Finally, the trade relationship with the Dutch 
The source of much of Mohawk power was in limbo. Perhaps the time had come for peace. The French, therefore, received mixed signals in the spring and early summer of 1666. Mohawk delegates arrived in Quebec in May, for the first time proposing to join the broader truce Garaconte was crafting. But at the same time, Mohawk warriors executed a daring raid on French troops, killing Tracy's nephew and capturing his cousin, among others. Tracy immediately ordered a detachment into Mohawk territory to act as a rescue party slash punitive expedition. But a few days into their march, they were met by a Mohawk peace delegation coming to the St. Lawrence. Accompanying the envoys were Tracy's cousin and the other prisoners. Clearly, the Mohawk political world was divided in how to approach the French question. It's likely that influential leaders were trying, with limited success, to restrain the enthusiasm of some of the young warriors. However, the subtleties of Iroquois politics escaped French military leaders. And in a sense, it may not have mattered. Even if Tracy and Governor Courcel had been able to navigate the nuances of Mohawk diplomacy, they had little desire to. Security on the St. Lawrence had to be established through a display of French military power. In October 1666, Tracy set about to do just that. This time, nothing would be left to chance. He assembled a force of 1,300 men, 600 French regulars, 600 Canadian militiamen, and 100 Algonquin and Wendat warriors. The indigenous allies immediately proved their value, and the force quickly moved through the forests towards Mohawk country. Within days, they arrived at the first of four Mohawk villages. However, there would be no glorious battle. Tracy found the village abandoned. Realizing that they had no hope of defeating a French force of this size in a pitched battle, the Mohawk had simply evaporated into the surrounding countryside. A frustrated Tracy ordered his men to set fire to the village, and his Wendat guides directed him to the next one. But the story was the same all through Mohawk territory. The entire nation had pulled out in advance of the invasion. Each village in turn was destroyed, and its crops burned. From Tracy's perspective, the campaign was a success. In Europe, warfare was about territory and capturing the other guy's castle, and he had done that. Surely the Mohawk were now a spent force, scattered to the wind. Better yet, it was a bloodless victory. The only loss of life on either side were eight Frenchmen who drowned in Lake Champlain on the way home when their canoes capsized. Before the end of the fall, Tracy and his men marched back to Quebec in triumph. A victorious France could now impose a peace on its defeated enemies. But in the indigenous world, victory and defeat were measured not in territory, but in people, captives taken and warriors lost. From that perspective, the Mohawk hadn't been defeated at all. In the short term, most of the refugees likely found shelter among their neighbors within the Confederacy. And in the medium term, villages could be rebuilt. In fact, in the Iroquois world, villages had a short shelf life anyway. For the Mohawk, therefore, the expedition wasn't the devastating defeat Tracy assumed it had been. But it was an inconvenience that effectively silenced any further resistance to peace. By the spring of 1667, the Iroquois Confederacy had finally reached a consensus. After decades of conflict, it was now clear that war wasn't the solution to their social and political crises. Delegates from all five nations came to the St. Lawrence to formalize a peace that would last almost 20 years. The French could proclaim this a glorious peace secured through victory in the battlefield, but in reality, the peace was more a product of long-running trends within the Iroquois Confederacy. The Peace of 1667, along with the royal takeover of New France, marks the end of one phase in the Canadian story and the beginning of another. In both the Iroquois Confederacy and New France, you can draw a distinction between pre- and post-peace society. For the French, the contrast is probably the most apparent. Before the mid-1660s, New France was a commercial enterprise, and a handful of intrepid farmers struggling to eke out an existence in the middle of a war zone. 
After 1667, New France was a crown colony, with royal officials, military resources, and state subsidies, all committed to making it a real colony. The peace only facilitated those efforts, and in the following generation, New France grew like never before, both in terms of population and geography. Within a couple decades, the entirety of the St. Lawrence Valley was covered by farms, from Quebec to Montreal. Perhaps less obvious was a marked increase in the movement of people after the peace of 1667. The Iroquois Confederacy expanded, especially across Lake Ontario to the North Shore. Decades of raids and counter-raids had denuded the population in such borderlands, but now villages started springing up. More significantly for our story, the number of indigenous mission settlements around Montreal and Quebec expanded too. Technically, these were operated by the Jesuits, but in reality, the mission villages represented a great migration out of the Iroquois Confederacy. For the most part, these were Algonquin and Wendat captives and adoptees, who had spent as much as 15 or 20 years within the Iroquois Confederacy. Many of them retained their adopted Iroquois identities. In fact, a whole generation was emerging that had mixed Iroquois, Wendat, or Algonquin heritage, not to mention numerous other nations. But while those new identities weren't cast aside, many came north to the St. Lawrence to rekindle old ties of kinship and culture. The mission villages would come to be central to the Canadian story. Through their Christianity, they were linked to the French and served important military, commercial, and diplomatic roles, without which New France couldn't function. But they also existed, in some sense, outside of the French colonial world. They were still bound to the Iroquois Confederacy by ties of blood, kinship, and culture. Meanwhile, the Iroquois Confederacy also underwent a noticeable transition in this period. For one thing, their Dutch trading partners were replaced with English ones. This would have consequences down the road, as the English were far more invested in American settlement and imperial competition with the French. Both factors would draw the Iroquois into colonial power politics, though less well appreciated until recently, the reverse was often true as well. On more than one occasion, imperialists in Paris and London would find themselves sucked into local North American conflicts. More significant, though, was the legacy of the 1660s within the Iroquois Confederacy. The decade had forced the Five Nations to act with greater coordination than they had in the past, a precedent that would continue into the future. Although the Confederacy remained a decentralized institution, a greater priority was placed on coordination, especially in foreign affairs. The kind of grand peace Conte envisioned would become the norm rather than the exception. The nature of political leadership in the Confederacy also seems to have changed over the course of the 1650s and 1660s. Increasingly, war chiefs were included in council discussions, which had previously been the province of civil chiefs alone. In a sense, the Iroquois were learning to adapt their diplomatic traditions to account for their European neighbors. In terms of what we may loosely call Iroquois foreign policy, the result was a shift in focus, away from the St. Lawrence. Iroquois hunting and war parties ranged to the west, to the Illinois River, or southwest, into the Ohio River Valley. In both cases, they found game, tradable fur, and indigenous rivals that weren't backed by European allies. But enough of long-term trends that we'll encounter in the future. In the immediate term, our journey takes us into a similar expansion of natural resource networks. The next two episodes will be devoted to Frenchmen as they take advantage of the newfound peace to penetrate further into the interior than ever before in search of fur. In two episodes' time, we'll follow the French into the west, where the Ottawa had already started to rebuild and expand the old Wendat network. But next time, we'll take an even longer journey. The original runners of the woods, Medard Chouart de Grosier and Pierre Esprit Radisson, were disillusioned with the French authorities and their ham-fisted management of the fur trade. They were determined to carve out a new network in a land never before visited by Frenchmen. 
Music by Jason Shaw, audionautics.com.